0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A's. It is currently Wednesday evening. I figured I would start recording whatever questions came through so far now, and then maybe tomorrow night follow up with whatever's left, because tomorrow's gonna be kind of crazy, and I wanna make sure I always get these in on time, because I really enjoy doing them. So if later on, if you're watching this on video and you see me wearing a slightly different black shirt than I started with, (laughs) that's exactly why. So anyway, let's jump in and check out the questions for this week. First up over on Patreon is a really nice comment from Mark, from Mark Fixes Stuff. Mark said they don't often comment, but wanted to say that they really appreciate these and know the time I put into them. So thank you Mark I honestly I, I really appreciate that and you know while this is one of my favorite parts of doing retro RGB hanging out with all of you it is very cool that, that people do tend to realize that these aren't just press a button yell into a camera and walk away 20 minutes later there is some effort that goes into these uh, but I do love the laid back nature and I really enjoy how it feels like I'm I'm kind of sort of pen pal hanging out with most of you it's not as fun as live interacting and I'd love to figure out a way to do that easily but i still enjoy these and i you know thank you very much for you know for the comment also i have something very embarrassing to admit i could have sworn i was following you on patreon and when i first read your comment i was like oh that's really nice mark you know let me put a link to mark's patreon in this description and then i thought wait why does it say that follow mark on patreon i'm already yeah i wasn't so Just to let everybody know, I get so many emails every day. So whenever I subscribe to somebody on Patreon, the next thing I do is mute all notifications. And it's not because, I'm not being rude, I don't care about what you do, it's the opposite. I care very much about what you do. I just, I wanna just get your content when it pops up on YouTube. Also, another side effect of this is occasionally I will get notifications for stuff and go, oh man, that's awesome, I'm gonna write a post about it. and. I haven't done it yet, but I've gotten to the point where I was about to hit, you know, sub, like, submit on the post, and I went, wait a minute, is this early access content? So I'd save the post, and i go check, and sure enough, it was still unlisted, and I wasn't supposed to be sharing it publicly yet. So it's the other reason why I ignore all Patreon notifications and just wait till it's public so I don't screw up. So my apologies, Mark. I swear I thought I was following you for at least a year, but... Oops, my bad. So, yeah, I will leave. If you want to check out Mark's channel and uh, Mark's Patreon account, I'll leave a link below. But Um, Thank you for the comment, and I also kind of wanted to just add some behind-the-scenes stuff to it as to why sometimes if uh, I'm subscribed to your Patreon, I probably don't see any of your notifications. But I mean that in a nice way. It means I trust you, and I just want to support you, and I don't need instant gratification from, oh, this is what this person's working on. Mm -mm, I got you covered uh, to the best of my ability, of course. So anyway, I'll stop rambling. Next up, Instant Gratification Monkey wanted to share a review of a portable 3x2 gaming monitor, I guess in response to the question from last week, and I have not had a chance to watch the review yet, and it looks like they went into detail about how it affects the aspect ratio, but I didn't see anywhere in the timestamps that they did a lag test. Now, I have not had time to watch the video, I don't know if I'm going to have time to watch it, so, uh, you know, for all I know, it's in there, they just didn't label it a separate thing, they mixed it in with something else, and... I just want to make the point that if you are a product reviewer out there and you're going to review a gaming anything, it's got to come with lag tests or people, people haven't realized until this year, believe it or not, the majority of gamers haven't even really heard of lag until recently. And now it's starting to become more mainstream. Now people aren't scoffing, going, oh, you're just an elitist looking for perfection. Now people are finally starting to get how it genuinely affects your gaming experience. So, you know, to that reviewer, put a timestamp in there for the lag test results just to shut me up. And if you forgot to do it, you might want to follow up because that's huge. And I just, a very serious note to anybody who reviews stuff out there. If you don't have a lag testing device, if you're not sure how to get lagged on in your situation, message me. I'll always help. I have always helped. I've never turned any reviewer away when they asked for help, especially with lag testing. So, you know, if anybody, if anybody does a review of a gaming monitor like that, just let me know and I'll give you some tips that'll really, really be able to help figure a lot of this stuff out. And you're going to have to spend a little bit of money and you're going to have to put some effort in. But isn't that what doing reviews is supposed to be about? You put a bunch of effort in to get a good review of a product out there. And once again, I have no idea. Maybe that video did do lag testing, but I just wanted to make it very clear that if you're going to review a monitor, you're going to want to definitely showcase the lag part of it. Next up, Tim the Gamer23 has a couple of questions regarding video quality. First, do capacitors and retro power supplies affect video quality at all? For example, they've recapped all their Sega Genesis power supplies, but more as a preventative maintenance move. Not sure if myself or anyone else has tested unmodified unmodified versus recapped. So the answer to your question is a little more complicated than yes or no. And part speculation, I'll try to be clear about that, but fact is anytime you throw a junk capacitor into a console or a power supply or anything it could cause a ton of different issues or anytime you use the wrong capacitor so that's definitely a fact make sure to get quality correct capacitors and to be clear about that if you have a capacitor i'm going to make up some numbers here but if your power supply had a 2200 microfarad capacitor that was 12 volts then you could replace it with the exact same thing, or you could replace it with a higher voltage, but it has to be the exact same capacitance reading. And it's my personal opinion that if you could fit a higher voltage cap in there, why not? The chances of a nine volt power supply putting out more than 12 volts are very slim, but what the heck, if it fits, Extra protection, what are you wasting? 10 cents, as long as it fits, that's fine. Um, And same thing with quality, as long as the capacitance is correct and it's not a junk capacitor, you're good to go. Um, You could do some creative internet searching to figure out what are the known junk brands and what are the decent brands of caps. But so as far as will it affect video quality, here's the speculation part. It It might cause some rippling, it might cause something else. But I think this is really more about quality of your entire system and length of life. So assuming you replace that with the exact same capacitance, but you know, same or higher voltage in a quality cap, you're never going to get worse video quality. But it could theoretically help clean things up, but more, more importantly about anything than any of that other stuff, is that as long as you're not using junk, you don't have to worry about any other issues. You don't have to worry about bad power going through any kind of weird voltage ripple and stuff like that. So while no, I have not tested unmodified versus recapped PSUs from the purpose, specifically from the purpose of video quality, I did use, until I switched to the triads, I did use only recapped Genesis power supplies with a good quality cap. And I, I never saw... Difference in issues or anything like that. So good question But I think what you did and why you did it a preventative maintenance move is the right thing to do And let's just say hypothetically the cap that was in your PSU was totally fine Who cares would you you lose 50 cents and a or a dollar maybe and you know a couple minutes of your time? So I think you made the right move and uh, as long as you use the right capacitance on each. I think that's awesome next do I have any recommendations for calibrating a 4k TV even if the retro consoles output the best signal, they feel like that's only half the battle. So you're gonna to wanna to go to AV forums for that. It might literally be AV forums or any of the AVS forums, whatever else, but you could find pro installers that have, uh, and also Artings, I believe, goes through some of this too, but you very often on a decent TV could find pro installers who have their settings set up. And that's a great base to go by it's not going to be nearly as good as somebody manually calibrating it yourself, but it's a great start and it will make a difference. And very often when you read through those, you'll find things like I've found many times before where you still get weird soap opera effect on certain video footage, but you have to go into a menu inside a menu and it's called something different. It's called like Bob's beard and you turn that off and suddenly your TV looks right. And that's very often what you'll get in those. So that's always the first step. See what other people have done and kind of go from there. And then it's really as far as you want to go. Do you want to go the distance and color calibrate? Do you have a TV that's worth it? No disrespect. I buy cheap TVs. I I love them for exactly what they are, but I also, you know, I have one TV in the house. That's a great OLED. And that's the one that I would absolutely spend the time to do some color calibration if I ever had time to do it. Um, But I wouldn't bother on the cheap TVs. I would just turn off all the weird, stupid effects. So that's another thing you could do. And I would kind of just go from there. If it's a brand new TV, some have... uh, I'm going to use the word burn-in, but it's the opposite of what you might think. Um, Burn-in procedures, as in like... um, making sure that it wears in properly. I had a plasma that I left uh, a color, like a repeating changing color thing on it. So it would switch between colors every 20 seconds. And I left that on for like three days because pros supposedly said that if you burn in the TV that way, if you breaking in, breaking it in is probably a better way to do that, to say that then that would help. Uh, But I don't know if that's the same anymore. That was 10 years ago, but that's, that would also probably be noted in one of those. So those are basic tips. I'd love to hear any of your others, but I'm definitely sticking to see what other people have done and turn off all that crap processing on most of it. And I understand why it's there. You you, know, if you, It's designed so that when you walk into a, a big box store and you see it on the wall, it stands out. And it's also, all those features are designed that if you have you know, a 15-year-old cable box that you're plugging it into and that's how you watch TV, it's going to look, in most cases, it'll actually look better than if you turn all the settings off. But if you have a streaming box, if you watch Blu-rays, if you play retro games, you're going to want to turn all that crap off in most cases. There's some exceptions on newer TVs that have awesome features. But uh, And last, is there a searchable list with all these Q&A questions somewhere? No. And I don't even know how I would go about doing that. Would I have to import all of these into a database? How could I filter it out? Could I filter the answers? But also, you know, you said that way you or anybody else could avoid asking repeat questions. Well, I never mind repeat questions because I'm always learning all day, every day. So if you ask something three months ago, there's a good chance I'll have a slightly different answer today. Maybe I'm half asleep and my answer three months ago would be better, but I don't know. I'd like to think I always gonna continue to learn and and have more knowledge. So don't ever worry about re-asking it unless it's like literally the same question two weeks in a row. But uh, yeah, hopefully I was able to, to kind of point you in the right direction for some of that. Couple of questions from the Remora. First, given the output of the OMVS, what's the best way to get S-Video out of it? Unfortunately, they haven't found any TVs in the 18 to 20 inch range with component video in their area, but they do have one with S-Video. They've been considering a GBS control build, but was hoping for direct analog. So, I'm, I think you mean the OpenMVS project, which OMVS is correct, but there's also the Omega MVS and the, I think there's another project called OMVS now as well, but it's not using our circuit, even though they totally should. <laughs> but um, assuming you mean the OpenMVS project from Avrum and Tianfeng, Tien, uh, then you would need an RGB to S video converter. Because in that project, we just took RGB out of the JAMA pins, RGBS, and then we converted that to be buffered in, in a way that it is perfectly safe to use with all Genesis 2 cables because those were. Uh, At the time, and sort of now, those were the easiest ones to get from multiple different sellers, quality ones. And there are different things, too. You could go with the HD RetroVision or Retro Gaming cables, RGB to component version of those, so essentially Genesis 2 component cables. Um, So you could get a bunch of different options for that. The Rad 2X worked with it as well. But getting S-Video out of it is going to require a conversion because there is no S-Video signal there. Uh, so you're going to have to use one of those external boxes. Now, luckily, RGB to S video is much less of an issue than RGB to composite. Although I have seen some converters that are better than others, but you might want to just look around for something in a decent price point. I know Ivory from Castle is supposed to be sending me another prototype at some point of a new version that has a bunch of cool features, and I'm not sure if that will affect S video out or just composite video. You could try uh wakaba video or linux bot 3000 they're the same person that's jam uh on in know Aust- uh, i think they're australian if they're from new zealand then somebody's gonna kick the crap out of me for getting those two wrong but uh Yeah, those are good as well, and they should be readily available on eBay. There's some open source designs, Mike Chi posted a design out there as well, and there's the Ashen one, but that's a bit expensive, Um, but it's got some decent features as well. So I would just take a look at all those and see what's the best, but you're basically going to have to go from RGB to S-Video in order to to accomplish that. So, yeah, there's no better way, but I really hope the new one from Ivory is as good as the Mr. Case that he built, because that really would be a perfect solution for everybody. Luma would be cleaned up really nice in the S-Video side of things, but also you could use composite, and it's not going to be perfect, but, you know, it'll be good enough. Also, do I have a recommendation for cables? They were thinking of taking their arcade sticks and putting a 15-pin port on them and making them match the three official SNK layouts. Their brook adapters do this over USB, but they would prefer a direct connection over a converter. So I had a video that I talked exactly about this, direct wiring your arcade sticks. Precisely four people watched it, but you know now you'll make it five because you're in the same boat that I was in. I want single button presses out of my arcade stick. And most in most cases, things like you know, the Undammed adapter would have done all of that for me without any problems. There's a lot of internal the M- MC Cthulhu and stuff that could have done that. But if I'm going directly into a super gun or directly into a Neo Geo, then why would I want anything else other than direct button pushes? So I will leave a link to that, um, check it out. But I just basically bought those pre-wired DB15 cables on Amazon or something. And unlike video cables, you don't have to worry about shielding and all that stuff. They either work or they don't, so just buy from a place that would uh, that would allow you to return it. So maybe Monoprice in the States, I'm not sure where what else that you could get worldwide, but Amazon and AliExpress certainly have them pretty cheap. So yeah, I'll leave a link to that as well. Um, hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction for both of these. Jeff L. is having problems with RCA cables falling out of their RCA to BNC connectors on their matrix switch. They've heard people recommend pinching the RCA tips with pliers. They're not keen on doing that, but another approach they've considered is buying RCA to BNC cables, not connectors, so that the connection is on the ground where there isn't a strain on the cables like there is with their current setup. Those cables are a bit pricey, though. Do I have any recommendations for how to connect RCA to matrix switches such that the connections won't fall out? Uh, so there's a couple of things. If How big is your matrix switch? If it's 16 ports and over, you probably have one of those tools that kind of looks like a screwdriver with a loop to go in there and uh, unplug your BNC connections. If, if that's the case, if you have a, a big switch like that, you might want to consider the opposite. BNC cables and on just like you said it on the other side have the RCA connection going into whatever's on the flip side of it um, you could try to put a little bit of tape whether it's medical tape or something else over it you could try a little bit of hot glue which by the way that will eventually dry up and pop off but that's the point that way if you ever need to take them off you can just put a little isopropyl and pop it off so people love to hate on glue but it really does have its uses sometimes. You could epoxy it if you really wanted to. Speaking of glue, then it'll never move. But, you know, if you ever want to use those cables on something else, you're kind of screwed. The only thing that I would say, about all of those are decent. Um, You could also try buying slightly better quality uh, RCA to BNC connectors, like the little things that you have. And that's one of the advantages of buying the better ones. But that's not always the problem of... The connector itself. So I don't want to see you spend $250 each on on those and not have it solve your problem. Uh, To be honest, I'd rather have you buy another random bag from just a different seller and see if they're a little bit tighter. But I think all of those things are decent. Um, I would just kind of decide what's the best overall. And the only thing to note is what cables are you using? And I mean this, I mean this from all the ways, like let's say you're buying HD retrovision cables, right? So that's a quality cable. These connectors should mostly stay in. Maybe just the strain is slightly tugging them out until they pop out, but you wouldn't want to swap those out with something that's subpar because those are really well shielded. They perform super well, whether you're talking about the console ones or just the RCA to RCA, those are my go-to definitely. But on the flip side If you're using cheap component cables then give those a try buy one set and see if it makes a difference for you because cables are really could make a break make or break a setup and the only unfortunate thing is if you if you get all really good cables and you never have any problems how would you know that they were good you almost have to fail once in order to realize how important it is but yeah those are definitely my suggestions um and I, you know, I have an Extron crosspoint I'm using, and I love it. I think it's it's been great. I'd like to try to get a slightly smaller one with less ports, just so it could fit a little bit easier in my setup. Uh, but I haven't had any problems with uh, cables popping out. And I mostly leave it where it is. But occasionally, I'll grab the whole thing and I'll twist it to its side. Then I'll climb underneath and swap out some cables and twist it back. So essentially, every cable is moving twice when I do that. And none of them have popped out. So decent cables, decent connectors should be a help. But I also agree with you. Don't pinch the tips. Um, I'd rather see you try those other solutions just because there's no permanent you know, permanent things done. Unless you epoxy them. But you know, if you want to go that hardcore, I don't know. I, I might even try buying some of the more expensive ones before I went and epoxied everything together. You might lose less money over time. But let me know if I pointed you in the right direction or if you uh, need another perspective or something. Next, Adam Stalker wants to know if I've heard about any projects that integrate a card reader into Mr. They have an NES homebrew collection and would like to play and dump those games because the ROMs are sometimes difficult to come by. So, no, but it's certainly theoretically possible. I have the Sandy card reader that somebody was nice enough uh, to build for me at cost. I think it's really cool. It's worked well for me. Um, I had a couple of issues, but most of all, it was everything that I could have asked for. Some automation would have been nice. You do have to flip the switches on the side, but you know, getting one of those and dumping your own ROMs to your PC would certainly be a doable scenario, but having Mr. do that is certainly possible, but I don't know of anybody working on it, and some of the devs that I had mentioned that idea to kind of looked at me like... Why would you use your Mister for that? I guess they didn't see the novelty of putting your cartridge into the Mister. So, no, I don't know about any of those projects. I'll, I'll leave a link to the latest version of the Sandy Cart Reader. Um, well, latest version that one store is selling. It's an open source project. Read read the post. You'll uh, you'll have all the info in there. But just to make sure that I'm clear about this, um, it's you used the words like cart reader. You know, um, dump those games. So that's why I answered it the way you did. If anybody's listening, I want to make sure I'm clear that there's not going to be an analog like solution where you plug in your Super Nintendo cartridge and play that off of the DE10. Now, maybe if MystX takes off and people start creating their own hardware for it, that would be totally possible. But the issue is that the DE10 Nano the heart of the mister is a development tool designed for students to just mess around with it and get familiar with it and as a result it didn't have it doesn't access every pin on the FPGA so you're not able to do a lot of stuff like that now that said there's some geniuses out there i'm sure somebody's going to figure out something cool like that in the future but it's not really likely whereas with future iterations of the project it might and I know that wasn't your question, Adam, but I just, I wanted to be clear when I was answering this. Cause I'm sure a lot of other people might be thinking, yeah, I would love a, to plug my NES cart in and play it for real, but it wouldn't work like that in the current form, you know, anything D 10 nano based, you, you would have to dump and then reflash your save file or something afterwards. But I think if you want to pick up the Sandy cart reader, it's a, a decent value and um, it's, you could build your own or you could just buy it from the store that, uh, that I found and, I've had pretty good luck with it, and that should accomplish everything you need for a lot of consoles. Double H just started working on a new NES controller from scratch, and is learning about controller-induced lag for the first time. Is there a chart that breaks down the lag times to different categories? Maybe what normal people will notice versus pro gamers versus what original controller lags are. So there's a lot to talk about here. And the reason that there's going to be a lot is because you're talking about making a controller that other people presumably are going to use. Congrats on that, by the way, I'm sure that's a fun project to work on. But that is going to change my answer drastically. For example, if your question was I'm looking to buy wireless controllers, what's acceptable latency? We could have that talk, but the bottom line is we're talking about your personal setup and you could make your own decision. When we're talking about making a controller that you might sell, you might make for other people, that completely changes the game. The other thing that I want to bring up, and this is absolutely pedantic, and I would not have said it if this was a question that was related to your personal setup, but once again, since we're talking about other people's setups, I want to make sure we get this right. The time it takes from an original wired controller, from when you press the button to when there's uh, the console receives the signal, shouldn't be called latency, because that's not delay, it's just how long it takes. It's time from button press to signal received. So, when if you're talking about building a new NES wired controller, there should be zero difference in time. Uh, at you know there should be zero latency added from when the original controller sends and you know receives a signal to the new one. There's no reason not to, or there's no reason that you would need to add lag. Chris from Displaced Gamers did a great video on how the NES controller works, and I strongly recommend watching that or watching it again just to double check and and see how that and the SNES works because it'll really show you why you don't need any latency added to that. Now, if you're talking about you're making a wireless controller and you would like to know, um, you know, what's an acceptable latency, then that's kind of an interesting discussion as well because you said... What about normal people versus pro gamers? What's acceptable for that? And that's an interesting question because anybody can detect lag. In fact, I know people that really aren't huge gamers that have sat down on emulation setups on a flat panel and said things like, why is my controller sticky? Controller wasn't sticky. They were playing on a laggy solution. So you bring them over to original console on a CRT, same controller even, and they're like, oh, the controller's fixed. Because your average person shouldn't have to be a nerd. You shouldn't have to know all the things that we talk about to just play a video game. But sadly, it is it is what it is. So I wouldn't go into this thinking about pro versus you know your average gamer because your average gamer could totally detect it so um and and one might even argue that if long as long as the latency isn't variable a pro gamer might be able to adapt to it pretty quickly so i would always aim for the lowest latency possible and there have been my favorite test was brian from retro usb took pro tetris players took their their own nes their own crt had them play a couple rounds on the original controller and had them play rounds on his wireless controller that he was then able to dial in the latency and the pro Tetris players weren't able to do their special moves at just about half a frame of lag or just around 8 milliseconds. So that for me is always the target goal. Less than half a frame of latency should be your aim. Now, if you're going to wireless controllers, you might not be able to help that, but you should always try to go for the lowest latency possible if you're talking about wireless. Or if you're talking about controller adapters, if you're building a new NES controller and you're using a USB chipset, not just an original NES controller, you want to aim for half a frame of latency or lower. Wired controllers can get down to one millisecond or less. Wireless, it's always kind of hit or miss. So... Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's definitely what I would want to impress upon you is that latency is a much bigger deal than most people think until they start to experience it. So take it really seriously when designing any kind of product like this. Um, The only other thing is it would be kind of cool to have a chart that shows when, Each console, or the fastest time each console could accept a controller press from an original controller, but software has a lot to do with that as well. So in the context of your question, it doesn't really matter. You just want to know uh, how would an NES compare to an Atari 2600 would compare to an SNES in receiving button presses. But no matter what the speed is, it still comes down to the software written to pull the controller as fast as it needs to be. So that's kind of a big deal. And we've all heard stories of games that were on multiple consoles that were laggier on some than others and stuff like that. But that's not your job building a controller, that's the software developer's job. So hopefully I was able to kind of put things into perspective and give you an idea of of how to go about doing this, but I'll drop the link to the Displaced Gamer video in there because that's the best place to start and keep us updated on how your project goes. Jason Guffey is looking for a tool they could use to plug in and check the current running through a circuit, but also break the circuit if a voltage or current exceeds a certain threshold. So for example, if they have a place for a 5 amp fuse, they'd like to be able to read what current is going into that fuse, but also have the tool stop the entire circuit right then, and then if input amperage exceeds 5 amps, so it doesn't blow the fuse. This is for the auto shop they work at, so they uh, don't end up burning through a stupid amount of fuses every time they have to troubleshoot until they find the problem. Anything like that come to mind. So yes, um, fault protection circuits do absolutely exist, and you could probably hand make a device where you would remove that fuse, put this in its place, and then attach your multimeter to it, and then have it trip like a standard house circuit breaker when it... Exceeds a certain thing, and then you'd have to flip it back. But a tool that does that, you would have to put it in line. So you would have to remove that fuse, or you would have to unplug a wiring harness and put one probe into the wiring harness and the other probe where the fuse goes. So it would be kind of hard to do that on a case by case basis. And I'm not sure how something like that or how much something like that would cost. So I'm probably I probably shouldn't be answering this cuz I don't have enough knowledge to actually give you real tips but some basic general advice would be to try to look for fault protection circuits like that circuit breaker style things and maybe there's a multimeter like tool that already has that functionality built in but I'm 99% sure you would still have to put it in line you wouldn't for example you wouldn't be able to just touch it to both ends of a fuse or one end of the fuse and ground, you would have to remove that fuse or remove something. So if anybody else has any of the other ideas, please chime in and let us know because that's kind of a cool thing. And I imagine that's something I could probably use to troubleshoot voltage issues and consoles and CRTs and stuff. Uh, Steve from RetroTech would probably be more interested in something like that, but it's still a neat tool that probably exists. Uh, And if not, you might even be able to make one. But you also might be able to get a giant bag of a thousand fuses for $2 and that might just be infinitely cheaper to to try to do, but cool question. Now over on Floatplane, a couple of questions from the importer. First they brought, uh, they purchased an SMS light phaser for their mister via snack, but the aiming is off. Playing the game marksman shooting where you can see where your bullets hit. It's clear it's aiming more to the left. Is there any fix for this or should they just return it to the store? Um, first question do any other light guns work via your mister and a snack adapter if your genesis justifier is working or your snes justifier or your nes zapper or whatever else if another cores light gun is working through snack then yeah there would be something wrong with that also uh when it comes to sms uh, um, light phasers i almost call it a zapper i've had some where i bought it I brought it home, I used it, had some fun. I put it away. I picked it up a week later, tried to use it with friends over, it didn't work. So I put it in the broken bin. A Couple of months go by, I take it out. Like, hey, I wonder what was wrong with this. I totally forgot, plug it in works perfect so i don't that's happened with probably three or four different sega light phasers so i don't know if there's something going on i've taken them apart i've checked that there weren't any like broken connections no cracks on the on the pcb that's in there so it could just be that uh however if For example, other cores are also not working. Or if you have the ability to test that on the original SMS and it's working fine, just check all of your settings in Mr. Do you have any of the buffering turned on? Do you have anything that might add even just a tiny bit of latency? Because you should, through a CRT, obviously, if you're using a light gun, through a CRT, but you should be able to get the same exact latency or the same exact time from trigger pulls to action on screen as original consoles. So that should work. Next, for the retro setup, they have a small sound bar in front of their CRT and the subwoofer is on the floor at a reasonable distance. Will this cause any issues? You're gonna have to test yourself. Bring up an all white screen and move those two things far away. My favorite way to do this is you take your cell phone and set it to manual mode or just a manual camera, get everything calibrated, you hit record, and then you bring the speakers near your TV and then you go watch the footage back and you could kind of see the rainbow effect go as you walk past if it's unshielded. But more importantly, you could also compare the first couple of frames to the last couple of frames. And that's how you'd be able to tell that it's just a little too close. And that was the case here. I wanted the subwoofer over in the corner, but it was just too close and it was affecting barely, but it was affecting the other CRTs, which could cause long-term damage. So you would definitely want to just double and triple check that. Three, they know the Saturn core for MISTER is not officially out, but when they use these pre-release builds on their CRT, the screen is way off to the left. It's the only core that does this, and they don't have the same issue on a flat panel. Do I know of any way to fix this? No, and because it's a beta core that's not even publicly released, it's possible that SRG320 knows all about that, and it's just like, yeah, I'll get to that later. I got other stuff to work on first. So um, that's why, I mean that with love. Love to you, love to SRG320. It's just one of those things where if it's not even a public beta yet, my guess is anything goes. Now, if you had told me three cores do that, but the rest don't, then we could dig into what your display is. If there's a sync stripper involved, is there something that's messing with the signal? But if it's only that one non-public beta core, if I say non-public, it's not like the importer stealing the core. It's available for anybody to down and download and build. It's just it's not something that is publicly available to just download. So yeah, that's my guess. And number four, in their modern setup where their PC and switch are hooked up to their 4k TV, they use Bluetooth headphones half the time, but they need to sync every time they want to use one device over another. Their current TV doesn't have Bluetooth, but whatever model they'll purchase in the future probably will. Would going through a TV add any more audio lag than going through the systems themselves where they could already notice a bit of lag? You're gonna have to try and see. My gut is telling me yes, but that is speculation. It's bullshit. It's me talking out my ass. My gut is telling me yes, you would probably get a little more latency. But for all I know, the TV manufacturer that you purchased might have some very cool thing where they're figured out how to do real-time sync with Bluetooth audio, or I don't know. but. My gut's telling me, um, plan for the worst, but hope for the best. Buster D got a bunch of junk Super Famicoms that they picked up in Japan, and most still work fine, but are severely yellowed and some have brittle plastic on the casing. They bought a clear Super Famicom replacement shell from Retro Gamer Store for one of them, but they really wish they could put one of the boards inside a clear Super Nintendo shell, as they no longer have their childhood SNES. But unfortunately, it seems like this would be impossible due to the differences in switches and eject lever, plus the controller ports. Do I think anyone would be willing to make an SNES-shaped Super Famicom replacement shell? No, because of how much it costs to do uh, plastic molds, that would be a ton of costs. I mean, in the shells, because there would be such low volume, it might be 300 bucks a shell or something like that. But what would make perfect sense is if, Anybody here listening who wants to do the opposite would be willing to trade. So I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure that the Super Famicom motherboard will fit motherboard will fit in an SNES. So you would just then have to trade somebody who is in the same position. They have a junk SNES, um, and they want you know they want a Super Famicom board to play Japanese games on with no modification or anything. Um, so and just swap them. And I think everything should connect. I think the front controller ports uh, and I'm, you know, I think the levers will still line up and stuff like that. Can anybody double check and confirm this for me? I would myself, but my, not all of my shells are here. There are many different places, having many different mods done to them right now, but... That, that seems like a much more plausible answer, because there's got to be somebody out there with a broken SNES that kind of wants to do the same thing, and since you have extra junk Super Famicoms, you could piece them together, one that works perfectly, and if you're both using retro Gamer Store shells, it doesn't matter if they're all brittle, as long as it has the eject lever and stuff like that, so... Yeah, I mean I think that's probably your best bet. So if anybody listening, you know, wants to l- let us know in the comments and you know, I'll try to put you two together. If not, Buster, I will talk to you at some point in the future about this cuz I'm sure I could make this happen for you. I know I have to have at least one friend that wants to do something like this. So, yeah, let's keep in touch about this and hopefully somebody'll just chime in in the comments and you'll be able to link up Before I go, I just want to talk real quick about why I've been experimenting with cameras and microphones and stuff like that. If you don't care about this, please just drop off right now. I don't want to waste anybody's time, but there are certainly a lot of people that want to upgrade their gear or are just as into this stuff as I am. So let me go through real quick and talk about why I've been messing with it. Uh, First, the microphone was very simply, like I said last week, a friend of mine let me borrow a mic that I was always curious about. And... Everybody seemed to like that mic and my old mic better than the one I've been using. So this is the one from New York that I used to have right up in my face. Um, And I stopped using it here because I just I was tired of having a mic shoved directly in front of my face every time I talked. So I got the Deity S mic, which is more of a shotgun room mic type of thing. And it's been good, but as I've been moving my whole setup around people started to say that it picked up more noise. So that's why I figured when I had that other mic to test, let me give it another shot and see. Now, yes, I know, pro audio engineers always tell me I'm supposed to have the boom mic up top, like, you know, right about here, you know, right above my head, basically, not below me. But I could try that again next week and see. But it's just, it would be really hard to get a ceiling mount or to mount it somewhere like this, because this is still... This is not a studio. This is basically my family room in my house, right? So I can't just be having everything mounted to crazy spots. It's going to at least not look so silly. So that might not be doable anymore. And also, when I first asked all of you which mic you liked better when I got the DADS mic, I was over on the other corner. So the way my voice echoes across the wall, the way the other stuff in the room echoes was totally different. So I thought since I had the chance to to try a fancy mic, I would just try it again and see. Uh, And I'm gonna be doing, on Wednesday I used the other mic and this one, I'm using my old mic. So, maybe if anybody is an audio engineer or just a fellow nerd with good ears, what do you like better? Did you like this week's roundup from Wednesday two days ago, or did you like this mic better? And I would really love to get this right because it's very important to me. I know it might not seem it if you hear some of my live streams, but it's very important that I get the audio as good as possible within reason. I can't spend a million bucks. I can't have things bolted to every corner of this room, even though that would probably make my life easier. It's got to be within reason. Um, Now, on to the camera. The camera is interesting. So I wanted to get another thousand frame per second camera. And I went, I mean, I probably spent over a year on this deep dive trying to find one. And there's the Firefly, I believe, but we're talking 10 grand with everything that you need. I don't have that kind of money. And I was even talking to friends of, you know, what if we throw down and you get it together? You know, some are videographers, and, you know, they, they would use that for other things than lag testing. So what I decided was, let me just find another Sony camera that has the exact same feature that my other one had. And I found that the ZV-1, the original from 2020, not the reissue, the Sony ZV-1 has that. And I tested it. I tested it on stream with Lewis the other day. It worked great. So I thought, perfect. This is my new thousand frame per second camera. And this is now my new spare camera if I need one. But then I thought, well, could I use it the way I used my GH5? That way, I could leave this ZV-1 camera always connected to the mic stand sitting on top of a reel of CDs, if anybody remembers seeing the room tour, Uh, and that would free up my GH5 to any time I need white box footage, high quality footage and streams, whatever else, because while I absolutely love this camera and these lenses, the one complaint I have about the GH5 is I have to fiddle with taking it off of a mic stand and a pile of CDs every time I need to use it and then put it all back together. The I think the ZV1 has done a great job doing 1080p60. I I think it's a little grainy. It's a low, you know, it's a cloudy day so there's low light. So, you know, the image itself is fine certainly for the weeklies because how I look in the weeklies makes no difference, right? It's just it's the about the information whereas on the fancier videos i do i like to look professional so i would always use the gh5 and that those nice lenses for those but i have one complaint about the zv1 the control app doesn't zoom and it's kind of finicky i think i have to set the camera to total manual mode but then i still couldn't figure out how to zoom with it so does anybody have a zv1 and use that sony app when i had the a6000 I, I a 5000 whatever that Sony camera I used in New York for a while that I really liked. I remember the app working really well, but maybe it's just so long ago and maybe I, I just thought it was better than nothing. I can't really remember because the Lumix app works perfectly. I could do everything right from that app. So that's kind of iffy, um, but worst case scenario, the purchasing the ZV-1 for um, now as my main slow motion camera was a smart move because it's also a great backup camera. It could do 1080p 120. And while yes, your cell phone could do that, the lens that's built into this is better than any cell phone lens on the planet, at least for now. So great, great camera. I would highly recommend it. If somebody's getting into retro and you even think maybe you would wanna do lag testing, get this one and it could do everything that you need on top of that. And as well as this could also, you could just plug it in to your USB port and use it as a 720p webcam, which is useless for this, but it would be perfect if I was just streaming me playing a video game and needed a small corner of me, you know, with a me shot in there. So that's a good feature for that. Or I guess if I was traveling and I could just record a 720p video on the go if I needed to, you know, like one of these weekly videos. But generally I'm going to use the HDMI output of it. So... I like that, and following up on the Keo Razer webcam, that's been awesome for live streams. It's basically as easy as every webcam that you've ever seen, but with quality that's far better than most webcams. It was super expensive, though. And while it did work for the weeklies, the way I had to do it was I had to run it in 4K 60 mode, or 4K 30, and then crop, because uh, there's no zoom in 4K mode, and. I tried putting it in 1080p60 and zooming, but it was super pixelated because it was digital zoom. So for me to be able to use it in this setup on that tripod, which, you know, tripod, (laughs) mic stand, um, it worked, but I would have to have my me shots in for, or it would come out in 1080p30 and everything else in the screen would be 1080p60. So I'm not sure if that matters. Maybe that's fine. Maybe that would actually be the better move is to leave that as this camera up here, but, I don't know. I kind of wanted to just talk this out and I know I've been rambling for almost 10 minutes, but that's why I gave you the warning at the beginning. If you don't care about this stuff, I imagine you're clawing your eyes out bored, wishing you could reach the stop button on this podcast. But if you have any setup, that's even remotely similar, I bet you you're probably, even if you completely disagree with me, I bet you, you were, you know, you appreciated the extra perspective on it. So I just kind of wanted to share what the heck I'm doing. Um, So if you made it this far, maybe you wouldn't mind leaving a comment. Do you like this mic better? Or do you like the mic I used on this week's roundup from just two days ago? Or I guess a day ago if you're listening to this right when it came out. Uh, Because that's going to be a big determining factor on where to go forward. Do I keep this mic again? Do I buy the same one as my friends and sell the DDS mic? Do I just bite the bullet and try to, I guess I can grab my old um, mic stand for my band and just try to get it really high up over the shot. Maybe I could try that next week just to see, but I want to get the audio right. And I don't want to upgrade again for at least another year. So maybe, maybe I'll bore you all to death again next year, but I just, I want to always keep getting better. The live streams are never going to be perfect. Never. Cause I don't, live stream here i live stream all across this room so being able to get the audio right every time for that is going to be impossible i'll keep trying but you know if that annoys you you yeah there's just nothing i could do about that so or if if you have any crazy ideas let me know as well but i think I, while I can keep tweaking it, it's not my live stream audio is never going to be perfect unless it's podcast style like this where I could be right in front of it, in which case I would probably just put the mic right in front of my face like I used to to avoid background noise. But I guess that's it. I'll stop rambling. Um, Thank you to everybody who participates in these. I really appreciate your support. I appreciate hanging out with you. And if you're new to these Q&As and you have a question and you shockingly made it to the end of this weird camera mic rant, ask any question you would like, wherever it is that you support. Just please put the question in the newest Q&A post because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. But also, I really just like doing it in real time or real time across two days like I did it this time. It kind of does make it feel like we're all just sort of hanging out somewhere together. And I would also like to do live versions of these where I interact with you more, but I got to figure out a good way to do that. So I'll talk more about that next week, but if you have any thoughts on that as well, please let me know. Anyway, thanks again, and I will see you next week.